For over 37 years, TargetLeads.com has harnessed the power of direct mail and targeted lists to help you achieve your marketing goals. Whether you are a coach, an athletic director, an administrator, or you represent a nonprofit or a for-profit entity, direct mail with highly targeted lists continue to outperform social and email campaigns. If you are looking to reach prospective students or athletes, they have the lists. If you're looking to grow your business, they will find you your next customer. While we spend so much time online, the offline physical touch and feel of mail stands out, gets noticed, and generates response. Don't sleep on the power of mail. If you are recruiting, fundraising, or growing your customer base, mail should be a part of your marketing strategy, and TargetLeads.com is there to help you achieve your goals. Visit TargetLeads.com and please let them know that Coach Climo sent you. TargetLeads.com. Mail works. Our next partner has a product I use every day. I started taking Athletic Greens because I wanted a simple all-in-one solution as opposed to the ever-changing variety of supplements I have been taking for as long as I can remember. Sometimes up to three ramekins a day full of pills and powders trying to find the right formula for peak performance. Now that I've been taking Athletic Greens for a few months, I love it and I will never go back. With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food, sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. I take one scoop in the morning on an empty stomach and an additional one in the evening when I am feeling run down. I've seen such a difference in my own performance that I recently ordered additional AG1 for the rest of my family to use. It costs you less than $3 a day, you're investing in your health, and it's cheaper than your cold brew habit, and supports better sleep quality and recovery, in addition to mental clarity and alertness. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com contacts. Again, this is athleticgreens.com contacts to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Welcome to the Contacts Coaching Podcast, dedicated to bringing you practical ideas from coaches, sharing what they have learned throughout their career. The show is designed to serve as a digital database of mentorship from a wide network of coaches whose innovative, reflective, and diverse knowledge may offer ideas to enhance your experience. In addition to sports-specific expertise, each episode also dives into the ways in which culture, strategy, tactics can cross from one discipline to another. I'm your host, Justin Klein. Welcome back to the Contacts Coaching Podcast. We are joined today by Jamie Wood, who is the Associate Director of Compliance at The Ohio State University, and he is the Sport Administrator for Track and Field and Cross Country. He also is a former football player for the Buckeyes. Jamie, thanks for being here today. Super excited to talk about all things in your space. 
Climo, I appreciate you having me, man. And I know it's been a long time coming. Honored to be another one of your esteemed guests here today. So look forward to the convo. Love it. Since you're in a little bit different space, right? Traditionally, this is about hands-on coaching of athletes. And as a former Division One athlete, and as a current member of the athletics department, specifically in compliance, which hmm. is probably a foreign language for 90% of the world, we're going to have a great time educating people. But my normal question is like, how'd you get into coaching? What was your first job? What did that look like? What were subsequent jobs? So we got to spin it a little bit to Jamie, you played division one football at the end of that. How did you end up being back in the athletic department overseeing compliance, which is probably one of the most significant jobs in that space. Talk us through how you got where you were. What was that journey like? Yeah, man. I think for me, man, coaching is a part of life. It's not necessarily confined to sports. I don't think it's hard to have a conversation around coaching because I think it just exists and it just is the way of things. So I think for me, man, my journey started obviously as an athlete. So playing sports from five years old on up, man, starting with basketball, t-ball, and then transitioning into football. Sixth grade was my first year playing contact football. At that time, I had moved back from, moved with my father for the first time. Sports has just always been a big part of my life. It's meant a lot to me as far as helping me feel as though I had meaning and purpose in a lot of ways. When you move around a lot, as I did as a young person, and move into different spaces, different communities, sports is often that glue. And it was for me. And then I happened to be pretty good at it. So that helps too. You always get picked first, or unless they got some haters out there, they try to pick their friends first, and then you get picked last or whatever. But Anyhow, man, sports just was a part of my life always. It was one of the constants for me. And so as I played and transitioned into college ball, so I was recruited pretty highly in high school, was an Army All-American, one of the top in our recruiting class of 2009. Man, it was a transition into the next phase. So obviously high school sports and amateur sports pre-college are a lot of fun. Once you get to that college level, it's a lot of business, man. And I think that's what a lot of parents and student athletes don't really understand is it's not football Friday nights where the whole community comes out and we're smiling and everybody gets a snack afterwards. And it's not like that. <laughs> It's, it's work. And when I transitioned into college ball, I dealt with some hardships, man. Red shirting being one of them. I graduated early thinking I was going to play early. That didn't happen. Red shirted. Played the second year, my red shirt freshman year, primarily on special teams. That year, we also got into some trouble, which is funny to see the connection to compliance now. And I dealt with, and I was in the middle of the Coach Trestle tattoo scandal situation that I was just a bystander there. So I had no clue really the intricacies that went into that situation. Obviously now working in this space, I understand and have seen and read the case to understand what all went into that. And moving forward, I got hurt, could never play again. So dealt with a number of injuries. And in my last year of getting hurt, it was my race shirt junior year. I decided to take advantage of one of the internship opportunities within the athletic department at Ohio State. That internship opportunity allowed me to establish some relationships. I was working in a ticketing office, which is not an area I would ever want to work. But I was able to develop relationships with people that still work here to this day. And I really think 
my involvement, my engagement outside of the arena, outside of the playing field is really what led me to where I'm at today. I worked outside of athletics for a couple years and then transitioned back into athletics after contemplating on being an AD at a charter school here in Columbus. So I got the call about that potential position. And then I ended up calling Gene and was like, Gene Smith, who's our AD, probably one of the most respected administrators in college athletics. And I just was like, man, I got this job opportunity, but I would love to talk to you first just about my future prior to. And that conversation led to an interview that then led to a job that's now led me to where I am today. Love that. And I want to go backwards here to go forward, because I think what you started with is very pertinent to both coaches and athletes and families that college sports is a job. And I talk about that all the time with our kids that have this D1 or bus mentality, and they are not aware that look at any level of college athletics, only 3% of high school athletes matriculate. So if you do that at all, it's a huge deal. But there is a difference between being a division three athlete and being a division one athlete where you have a full-time course load on top of a full-time job. And then another part-time job when your full-time job of being a football player or a basketball player, whatever is done to go train, to continue to do that. Can you talk about the reality of that space. And as a guy that oversees track and field and cross country now within the department, it doesn't just have to be about football, but really spell out the reality of what a division one, especially at a place like Ohio state athletes, like life is like, right? What does that look like day to day? Well, it varies for every sport, obviously, like you mentioned, you got different seasons, different times in which they can practice. You got seasons that are 144 days in length, 132 in some, where coaches basically have, and each sport has a designated like playing and practice season. But then they have also the rest of the year where at a place like Ohio State, at a high level, um, any power five or any institution really, not even power five, any division one level competitor is, is training year round at this day and age. And that can look like, that varies. But we have strength coaches, we have nutritionists, we have all the support that our student athletes could need to be able to maintain training in that capacity. Now, when you throw in school, you throw in the academic component, that is really a big part of their job, quote unquote. I hate working in compliance. I got to tread lightly on using the word employee and work, especially because there's lawsuits kind of in play right now where legislatively they're trying to define athletes as employees with labor relations and making sure that they have their rights and are protected to some degree. There's another side of that too, where you can also be fired and your money being taken away. So I don't think a lot of people are looking at that side of things, but the typical schedule, man, is like an early morning workout. So You'll have a lift early morning. I'll speak for football specifically. During the season or preseason, they're in camp right now. So they are in a hotel for about two weeks and they're training. They're lifting probably once a day 
but then they're practicing every day as well. And they have to have at least one day off, but every other day there was free reign because school's not in. <laughs> and so they're meeting all day. They're having, they're meeting about meetings. So it's a lot of watching film, a lot of discussions around game planning and who they're preparing for in competition. But when school gets going, they're done. So the typical school day, I'm, I feel like I'm all over the place right now. I'm trying to envision the day. You got class from maybe 8 a.m. to 11. You'll go in and you'll do like some film study right after your class and maybe have a meal. All these facilities nowadays, especially at a Power 5 institution, they have all you need. You got all your food, you got TVs, you got a, a place to take a nap, you got everything in these facilities. And I think they do that also to save time and hopefully be more efficient. They, you go there, you have practice or you have meetings that start at 1.30 or two o'clock. So you got class eight to 11, you eat, eat at lunch for about an hour. You do a little bit of film study or maybe some rehab, or maybe you'll do a lift before practice, like a little pump. But then you got meetings and everybody's expected to be in the facility at two o'clock. All classes are scheduled in the first half of the day or in the evening after practice. And then you're there from two to about 6.30, 7 o'clock because you practice for maybe three hours. And then you have a post-practice film on some occasions. You have ice tubs and taping treatment. So it's just, it's a full day. And then you have tutors after practice, if, especially if you're a young buck. So it's a full day. And, and people think, okay, coaches have 20 hours, which is like the NCAA rule. During end season, you have 20 hours to do athletically related activity, required athletically related, related activity. And 20 hours is not getting the job done at a place like Ohio State. So that's where student athletes have to take the initiative on their own to, to carve out time or to ask for extra work. And it's expected. So it happens. <laughs> Absolutely. I like to call that optionary. It's optional. So it's plenty yeah. time. Voluntold, um, all yep. of the crazy. Yeah. Yep. Well, I think it's it's thanks for sharing that because I think what I was getting at is not necessarily in the minutiae of what you're talking about legislation-wise, but more about there's this this dream that kids have, and I'm gonna go do X, Y, and Z. And then the reality that hits you in the face when you get there is whoa, this is all I do. It, it's not a bad thing, but it is basically especially to your point at the Power Five Conference in football, you are a pro as a 19-year-old without yeah. the label as being a pro. And sure. so that takes me to this next piece, which is the evolving landscape of college athletics and some of the states which <clears throat> passed legislations that allowed athletes to get paid. The NCAA pushed back a little bit, but ultimately what we are where we are with the NIL, which mm -hmm. if you could explain that, really quickly and then talk about the positives and negatives and the shifts that that has now allowed for those student athletes that are basically ding to dong like involved being professionals yeah they so the way to look at it maybe a, a good way to break it down is really they can use their athleticism or their identity as an athlete their marketability their social presence to make money um, and so third parties can now pay these student athletes to show up for events and, and make an appearance. They could pay them for a retweet. Now that these kids are coming into college with hundreds of thousands of followers, they have, they're basically like walking billboards in a lot of ways. Which wasn't the case before. That would have been illegal. Whereas my daughter who 
is going to be a sophomore in college, has a Samsung deal because she's got so many followers that she just puts stuff online and gets paid. Yeah. Formerly, the athletes couldn't have done that. No, they couldn't. They could only do things like with nonprofits. They couldn't work with for-profit industries or organizations that make money because we would send out cease and desist to try to basically tell these businesses, you're breaking a rule and these student athletes can sue you for using them in your promo. And then July 1st of last year, the whole rule changed. And so now, yeah, it opens the door. So I mentioned the violation that our, to my teammates that really ended and altered some of their careers. You think of Terrell Pryor, Devere Posey, Daniel Heron, Boom Heron, Mike Adams. Those are four got four of the five guys that got in trouble during that tattoo deal. You mentioned that, and I was chuckling inside given the current landscape that yeah. that would have never happened today because they could have claimed, like, I'm promoting this because of who I am, and that's exactly. now okay. Exactly. Yeah. So they could have gotten free tattoos, which was one of the claims is they got free tattoos, which I did too. But <laughs> the issue was they did it in exchange for like apparel and like gear and memorabilia. And what happened is there was a federal investigation separate of that incident that end up, they end up discovering all that stuff. But essentially, but basically, yes, if that happened today, they could get their whole body inked up for free in exchange for reposting or posting pictures and tagging in the company. So it's anything from signing an autograph on a napkin all the way to four-year deal with a company where you're getting paid for sponsorships, whatever, anything that they ask you to do. It's a business agreement. Whatever I contractually agree to outside of it being tied to pay for play. And then the state law is really what's, what is governing all of this at this point is what does your state law allow? And then also what are your institutional policies? If we go all the back, the way back historically to the era in the early, late 60s, early 70s with Before the me. AAU and like Steve Prefontaine and those guys trying to take charge of their own identities and market it. We've, we're now 50 years later where we're finally hitting that spot where people can reclaim like my being is mine. Like you don't own it anymore. What, yeah. what are your thoughts on that? And what impact do you think it's had so far, positive and negative? And what do you think it's going to do moving forward? Because we're still in the early stages of this being the Wild West, as far as I can tell. Yeah, in a, in a lot of ways, that is one way to look at it. It's, it's, it is the Wild Wild West for, for some institutions. Others move with more discretion. But I think for me, I see the good in it, man. I see a lot of opportunities for young people to make money and maximize this window. Some of them, like you said, the 3% will go on to be able to play. But the, those that are currently at Ohio State, you're getting tagged on posts. You're, you're grow, you can grow your following and grow your social presence while at the institution, even if you're not the top dog. And that's part of the privilege of wearing the brand and wearing the block O and whatever other institution you end up going to. But I think it, show, it's, it gives them opportunity to learn business. That's where I look at it is what better way to learn. And I think there's probably studies out there where project-based learning, experiential learning, all of that is being talked about in the, the formal classroom. The same exists here. You can learn by doing and, and while doing. And so my thing here is that 
we're, the institutions are put in a tough place because the NCA is not giving very much, they're not giving much guidance. There are some basic parameters here that are general in, in nature. And, and a lot of that is because they're not trying to get sued and get in any more antitrust issues because yeah, I mean, we're in a litigious society. So everybody's ready and waiting to sue. And so with that in mind, man, I think a lot of institutions are, they're just letting these third parties run and manage things. There's agents that are popping up that are now NI, quote unquote, NIL experts that, you know, you can't be an NIL expert. It just, it just started. So you might know how, no marketing, you might be able to help in some, to some degree, but I hope, and with any athletes that I talk to is find people that know who you are and that help you discover who you are, but that are going to teach you not just do things for you. And I think that's the, we sometimes get in a crippling space where we're doing too much for them and they can't learn, they don't learn. And then people that when real money gets involved, the sharks are in the water and they're trying to take advantage of them. Absolutely. Can you really quickly talk about this idea of a collective and how that impacts the landscape and how, let's just say what it is, like certain universities are going to have an advantage in their ability to generate revenue for their athletes. And if you feel so inclined, how the transfer portal plays into all of this as well. <laughs> that piece. Everybody's favorite, a coach's favorite. So well, again, as a guy that was part of collegiate athletics from the early 90s to 99 for 10 years, none of this existed. You didn't have to worry about that. It was like high school. You transfer, you got to sit out, whatever. Now, again, it's the Wild West. And I don't remember the data, but I looked at it the other day, like in one sport, there's 1700 kids in the portal and only 400 of them found a new home. So like, how does all that play in? And really, Jamie, I'm curious from a compliance standpoint, what are you seeing behind the curtain and what's the reality of that space? And what is the advice you have for athletes that are just going along with whatever seems to be popular. For sure. I'll try to start on the collective piece. And essentially collectives are a group of influential people. Oftentimes they have a lot of money or they're able to gather people that have a lot of money that essentially do group investing in the athletes. So if you think of pooling money together and if they are getting nonprofit status, people that are giving it are getting a tax, a tax benefit from giving to these collectives, then in some instances, we'll partner with the athlete to have them show up at a nonprofit function or at a speaking engagement for a foundation. They're able to present them opportunities to make money, get money while they are essentially middlemanning a lot of things. And yeah, they're popping up all over. I and mean, it is creating some advantages because some operate all should be operating solely like separate from the institution, but you'd be a fool to think that there's no communication, no line of communication. Cause one of the requirements that we have as an institution is we have to educate and oversee our boosters, the people that are affiliated and around our program. And so there's that line there where we do have to educate them. We have to provide them parameters, but we can't tell them what to do. They also can't leverage their collective status and their ability to position people to tie it to one school because it also can't be, they can't be recruiting on behalf of the institution. So there's just a bunch of murky and muddy water out there because it, it sounds good conceptually, but to think that human beings that operate with their own moral compasses are operating with the the institution in mind always and the NCAA risks that we have to consider is far-fetched. 
because it's likely that there, there are some bad actors out there and it's just permissibly allowing them to funnel money to prospects to come to certain, certain institutions. Yeah, it's going to be that way for a while. So that's the tricky part that y'all have to navigate. Pivoting to the other part of the question, things that you're navigating in compliance within the transfer portal and with this other stuff going on that may or may not be enticing to people, but what's your take on that? What advice do you have for institutions and athletes in regards to how to navigate that where you're at the tip of the spear here being the Ohio State University no doubt. and then there's the trickle down effect as well. Yeah, and we've got people leaving. We've got people coming in. It's tough for coaches. So I empathize with our coaches in some degree where they're trying to manage a roster. So the football, you got 85 scholarships. Various sports have scholarship amounts that they can have and they can hold within their team that are eligible to compete. And so as they're trying to manage, one, the front door, they also have to keep in mind the back door is now open too. And so we have recruiting efforts and then retention efforts. And so to me, it puts more onus on the program to make sure these student athletes are having great experiences. One thing that, but ultimately a lot of these young people and their families don't think about the totality of the experience. They think about playing time only, and that's how they measure success. And they don't understand that. I'll use Terry Glenn, for instance, sat for three years and his third year, he had a breakout last couple games and that was all he needed to get the professional opportunity that he wanted and so it's just it's sometimes it's like chasing the fairy dust man or like the glitter and the gold and not I see that end of it where coaches are like man just lock in and let's grow and let's develop but then I also see the other side where for years man they've had all the power and all the control and so I don't think the pendulum switching from one side to the other is maybe the best. I think we have to find the middle ground. And I think the education around the transfer portal, one is where are you at academically? That should be your first conversation because we've got a lot of kids that are leaving institutions. One, I've heard of some that had just left and didn't even finish their semester of classes thinking that they're just going to be able to pick up at this other institution. No, you have E's and I's incompletes on your record now because you didn't close out well. And so whenever a young person enters their name in a transfer portal, that institution, if that young man or young woman is on aid, can take their aid at the end of the next semester. So say the semester starts here next week and I'm having a good first couple of weeks and then I decide I'm not playing first game of the season, second game of the season. I want to transfer. At the end of that semester, that young person can transfer. So the name will be entered into the portal. At that instance, the team and that program, once notified that the young person wants to enter the portal, can take their rights to be around the facility, be in the program, get the strength and conditioning. Oftentimes they keep and allow the academic piece to still continue because you want them to continue because you're on the hook still from an APR standpoint that you're, but when it comes to the playing time and taking their aid, you can't take their aid until the next semester. So they're on your books for that semester. You can't add somebody else to your roster on money. But there's just so many variations and so many different scenarios that come up. But the number one, I would say, is make sure you're in good standing academically and wherever you're trying to go, make sure that you can transition there and transfer credits over appropriately so that you can be eligible 
when it comes time because eligibility, it sounds good that you're instantly eligible, but that's not always the case because there's so much more that goes into it. Yep. And I love that. And we're going to stop with that there because it's almost as I advise former students who may want to transfer from their school. The first question is what units are going to transfer? What is this going to do to your graduation length of time, right? Progress progress towards degrees is the term that we use, PTD. Yep. And it's interesting because as a non-athlete, that's probably front of mind. But as an athlete, it's not. And so how do you shift that mentality that it's cool, the sport's important, and you're here to get a degree. So are you transferring to an institution that's going to take your classes or are you starting back over? And I think that's a great point to bring up and I appreciate you doing that. And what I wanted to get into as I'm listening to you is how do you, within your role, and I think what I really want to get at is this idea of the totality of the experience, I think is what you said. And I talk a lot to both our athletes and our coaches about role definition and how important it is to have very clear defined roles for staff, for athletes, so that people can star in their role. And ultimately, to your point, right, I came in, I graduated early, I thought I was going to play, I ended up redshirting, then I got to play my sophomore year or my redshirt freshman year. And then some of these other kids, you the, the, the example you used, great preseason, camp, didn't play game one, didn't play game two. All right, I want to transfer. It's like, how do you, as a former athlete, who's not technically on coaching staff, but you're around these kids a ton, like, how do you coach that kid that there's value in the role that you're playing right now? To mm-hmm. The Terry Glenn example, right? What is the experience that you've had there? And how do you try to move the needle with these athletes to coach them on life? Hey, this role is just as important as the dude taking the snaps, right? This is important. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think a big part of it, man, is like helping them see where they fit in this system. So uh, we talk about it, man, like often is that you are a number in a lot of ways, but you don't have, this experience doesn't have to be a transactional one where you, you view yourself in that way. I think uh, Coach Trestle used to always say, Ohio State's gonna use you. And I'd be damned if you don't use them back and get everything that you can out of it. But I've seen far too often, and some of my former teammates and even young people to this day, is they walk out of here feeling like they were used. Like you're a piece of bubble gum and you're spit out as soon as you lose flavor. And yes, it can be that way. But oftentimes those same people that have those feelings did not get that broader picture of what you're here for and what you're doing and the opportunities that present themselves to you. And so when I'm talking- Well, even on that, Jamie, just talk about your own experience because the way you described it to me, there's probably a little bit of that feeling early. No doubt. And now as you've matured and grown, there's probably a different perspective on that. Oh, there is, man. I came in thinking that I'm playing right away, thinking that everything that I needed, everything that I was gonna do on the field. I had all these dreams. I'm I'm three and out. I'm out of here after three years. I don't even need a fourth year. I'm wearing my rings around and just thinking like that is all that mattered, man. Your body, 100% of the athletes retire. And so to me, my focus and my communication with our young people today, man, is okay, how are you becoming a better 
individual, better human. But then what else do you want out of this? So it's not, okay, yeah, you had a great game. What are you doing? Even in the NIL space, okay? So what causes are you involved with like that align with the things that you care about? It's not just about making the bread, making the money. How are you growing? What? How are you developing? And so for me, man, I didn't have... I think my injury was a blessing in disguise because it humbled me and it forced me to look at myself in a different way where my body couldn't produce anymore. I'm trying to avoid the facility because it's a reminder that of what I can't do anymore. The physicality that I used to play with this banged up shoulder is, would not allow. And it forced me to look outside of myself and to look at the broader picture. And that's where I'm glad that I had administrators that actually crossed paths with that encouraged me to apply for the internship program that then turned into a year and a half of interning with the department. So what we're doing a better job of now at Ohio State, and I think a lot of institutions are, is are investing in that student athlete development space where they're being prepared for life, not just their field of play or their arena, because that's only a portion of their life and majority of them will not continue post-college. What would you say are the lessons you learned throughout your athletic career mm -hmm. that have most served you in your transition to a employee, a professional in college athletics or wherever you happen to work, right? Say you had taken that AD job and in your growth as an entrepreneur as well. What are yeah. the things that you learned that regardless of your injury, it's I'm not here, I don't have this skill set if I didn't grow up being an athlete. And if you could wrap into that, the fact that you were a multi-sport athlete and not just a specialist. No doubt, no doubt. I think one of the key things that I've recently have just assessing my core values and a lot of that is intertwined with sport and my experiences. I think number one, man, is finding common ground with people. Sports is worshiped in America. <laughs> and across the world, not just America. And you can leverage the athletic piece to impact and to engage with folks that otherwise may not want to deal with you or may not want to be affiliated with you. Personally, even as a Black man, there's some privilege that I gain from being oh, Jamie Wood, Ohio State University. There are people in their spaces that I'm allowed in or that I'm encouraged to, to be in that if I hadn't had that background or those past experiences may not have been the case. So Finding common ground, the locker room to me is like a microcosm of life. And if the world can model how I would say football locker rooms are, you got guys from rural farms of Oklahoma and Ohio, the big 300 pound linemen, you got the speedy fast guys, even just in there, like how they move and how they operate in the athletic space, that diversity and the value in that diversity, you put Jamie Wood at the offensive line, our team is getting killed. So it's like understanding, also understanding the value of your role. Like you mentioned just recently is, yeah, no, you're not going to score touchdowns and probably win the Heisman. But if you don't hold the T or if you're not a good place kicker, we lose a game. So I think the same goes with like life for me in my profession. I rarely look at anything being too small for me to do. So if it's cleaning up the kitchen or if it's sweeping something or if it's doing some monotonous spreadsheet work. It's not too big for me. And I think that's another thing that sports has taught you. you. You learn to do the dirty things. You learn to do the things that not everyone likes or wants to do because of your role and how it plays into the big picture of, uh, of the game. But I think lastly, I would say just managing time, man, because you have to figure that out when you're playing is so much. I think one of the things I learned is through 
a struggle that I've, I'm still working through. I think everything being ironed out and lined up for you. When you go to college and even a lot of parents these days, they don't let their kids struggle. And I see that even in, in the college space where we have so much, so many resources, so much to, so much support for these kids that we almost cripple them to where they can't function on their own. So my strength workouts, I didn't have to think, I didn't have to come up with a workout plan. My food, everything was ironed out. It was already there and prepared for me. So I wouldn't have to learn to cook if I didn't have to, or if I didn't end up choosing to. So I think I've learned even just on the other side of that is that helping people figure out how to navigate life and just the various things that are pulling at them and helping them to become autonomous and to figure it out on themselves on their own. Yeah, I would 100% agree with that in regards to our student athletes that often seem to be more busy than the students that are not in athletics often are more functional because of that time management piece, the ability to play different roles, the ability to serve. Mm -hmm. And I love all of those examples. I want to pivot to your shift in responsibility from where you added this role as sports administrator for track and field. When you, and again, you've been in the space for a long time. You've watched others, how the thing works, but now all of a sudden you're in charge what did you realize right away that you needed to figure out that you weren't prepared for? Well, I think being two months in, so this all started June. This is the, what, August 14th right now. I'm in charge by title, so I'm the boss of our head and director. However, it's still very much her program to run. So a lot of my job, what I'm learning is not to tell her what to do, it's to provide her options and provide her a perspective that she may not consider on her own, being a resource, being support, and really being able to be whatever she needs me to be. And that is part of that is like just communicating and staying and building relationship, building trust so that she knows, okay, if I got a problem here, I know Jamie's got me in this space. And so with her being a new director too, this is her first year here at Ohio State. There's also some challenges there where she doesn't know what she doesn't know. And so trying to lay out the plan and give her connections to other coaches that have been there longer so that she can start to develop her vision and her mission for this program. And I'm just there to assist and to aid her and bring it to life. Yeah, no, that, that answer is perfect because I've often referred to that in other conversations on the show that the role of the athletic director and in your case, as the sport admin, you are the assistant director for said sport, right? You're her number one assistant coach. Like, how can I make your life easier? How can I help you execute your job better rather than what you said is trying, it's not your job to tell them what to do. It's your job to provide context. It's your job to interpret certain things. It's your job to give feedback about things. But at the end of the day, it's like, how can I help? And I love that answer. It's, I couldn't have teed that up better in regards to what is our role in administration. And it's challenging because I'm also wearing the compliance hat where I am giving solutions. Yep. I'm giving like, no, you can't do this, but you can maybe do it this way. So I, it's similar in that I'm, even in my compliance, I'm giving options and potential solutions and parameters and perspective. But it's different that my mind, I have to switch and take my hat off to where I'm like, I just need to ask a question here and just to get a better understanding of the rationale and why they want what they want. And then also, yeah, what, so what are we trying to get here? What's the objective here? And so using those skills that I learned through compliance, but also 
just being more of, I'm going to give you this framework, you have at it how you want. Yep. And I love that you just said that because I talk about that a lot here with our students in regards to those of us that wear many hats, right? So I'm the athletic director, I'm a basketball coach, I'm a resident faculty member, I'm an advisor, I'm a teacher, and it's, I'll tell them, I am taking off my AD hat, I'm putting on my advisory hat, this is the lens through which I'm speaking. Yeah. <laughs> because that clarity is important. Are you talking to her from your compliance hat or from your admin hat or from your former athlete hat? And those things are super important because it is different perspective. And I learned very quickly when I became the athletic director, my suggestions or observations could be felt by our coaches as directives. And it was like, no, that wasn't the intention. We're just having a conversation. But I think that's actually a really good share. I want to go back to, you brought us back to compliance. What would you say are the most consistent themes that come up in compliance, which are avoidable? And then those that are much more complicated and it doesn't matter how much prep work you do on the front end, you're going to run into some things, just like one or two of each. As far as like rules that are broken? You interpret it how you want, because I don't understand the space you're in the same way you do. What comes across your desk regularly that if you had a magic wand that you could wave and be like, look, if people would just do X, Y, and Z, this would never come across my desk again. And then there's the other one where it's like, it doesn't matter what magic dust I sprinkle, this is showing up on my desk. For sure. I think compliance exists to protect us from ourselves. If there were no controls, no checks and balances, we would really be in the wild west. And so the intent, I think my appreciation for compliance is because it does establish some sense of order and guidelines. Now where it gets cloudy is because there's interpretive philosophy. So there is a gray area always. And so based on your aptitude for risk, your institution's comfort level with pushing the envelope, your president's support of college athletics. There's so many other factors that go into decisions that are made, things that are given a thumbs up or things that are given a thumbs down. And oftentimes coaches don't think about those things because they're looking from a very narrow scope. We got to think precedent. We got to think, okay, if we allow XYZ sport to do this, we got to also apply the same here. We think about Title IX. Those are things that we have to think about too. It's like, okay, yeah, we would love to empty and back the Brinks truck up on football, but then we also serve 30-some other sports that we have to re- remain some sense of equity across the board. And so there's just the lens that I don't think coaches and other people, especially fans and people that are criticizing departments, is that they don't understand too is that we generate a lot of money, but we also spend a lot of money. The whole NCAA system, people don't understand that the NCAA's rules are voted on by institutions. It's not just the almighty NCAA forcing things down as if they're like God. No, it's, there's still free will. There's still institutions that vote on different rules. And oftentimes the rules are voted with their self-interest in mind. So you're voting based on okay, this competitor is kicking our butt in this space, so I'm going to vote no here as an institution, or I'm benefiting from this, so let's vote yes, and let's try to lobby and get everybody else to vote yes, because it's in it works in everybody's favor. So people just don't understand that it's like a federal government, where 
there's very few executive orders out. It's all legislatively and ran through a, in my opinion, oftentimes antiquated system that, but it's there because they want to give everybody a say. But one of the challenges is that power five institution like Ohio State is, it does not often, we compete against these schools, but we don't, but these same schools have the same voice that we do at some of the tables. So there are some autonomy rules where it just applies to power five, but then majority of the rules are, you got to service Ohio University, Miami, like these smaller institutions and Ohio State, which we are just in a total different space. Yeah. And I think the highlight of what you said for the average listener is coaches and fans and athletes generally have tunnel vision in relation to what they care about. If I am the basketball coach, that's what I'm worried about. But yeah. as I zoom out and now I'm in the admin space, I can't just think about this sport without understanding how it impacts this other one. And that sometimes creates conflict because the coaches are provincial, the athletes are provincial, and the admin has to be much more holistic and encompassing. So if if, if you take nothing away from what Jamie just said, take that in mind. How do we better better help coaches with broadening their scope, Climo, now that you, since you wear both hats, what's worked for you? So. Let me answer that in a couple different ways. So how do you help them understand that lens is you use situations as they come up as educational opportunities rather than just a no or a yes. And as an administrator, I pride myself on trying to find a yes as often as possible. And if I can't, then I like to explain why. So for example, I'm the boys basketball coach and I'm hyper cognizant of anything that I'm doing for my program at a minimum, I have to involve the girls basketball team to make sure there's an equivalency. And in addition, I also have to zoom out a little bit to take into account the other programs and how what we're doing might get interpreted because I'm the athletic director and is something being privileged. I was taught early by one of my mentors who was the girls basketball coach at my old school and I was the boys coach and I got to watch him navigate that space. And the boys basketball budget was actually 1% higher than the girls basketball budget, but everybody still thought that the girls were prioritized and everything. And it's that's gonna happen regardless. So how do you zoom out and how do you make sure that you're doing everything you can on your end, regardless of how it's interpreted, where you can point to, no, here's all the things that we're doing to make sure that there's equivalency and there's equity to the extent that they can. Mm -hmm. And I think educating around that is the most important part, especially for the leaders of those programs so that the talk track remains the same. It's not just me up here barking about it, but no, they're like, hey, I can see how it looks that way, but here's the reality of what's happening. This program just got X and the athletic director was very specific to make sure that this program also got X or had the opportunity to do that. So I think that's one way. The other thing that I've bumped into a lot as we've gotten better in athletics is combating the youth sports industrial complex and their push of sports specialization in regards to, yes, 
I know in your mind, coach, that the best way to become better as a team is to have your kids playing that sport out of the season year round, but that doesn't jive with the mission and vision of our athletic department. And so if you're going to ask, can we host said club program, my pushback is going to be yes, but as soon as athletes start bleeding off of other teams, I'm going to shut it down. And so ultimately, it's like, how does your mission and vision get collaboratively messaged on a regular basis to your stakeholders, right? Um, Are you all rowing the same direction? And if so, then it's a whole lot easier to be in alignment than if not, where maybe they're not a mission appropriate fit for your institution. And as a small school of 520 kids, we need our best athletes to play everything. And so that goes counter to what's messaging in community and in society today. And we have to push back on that. It's yeah, I know you are a baseball player, but what are you playing in the fall? And what are you playing in the winter? And Mm -hmm. so I think what Jason talks about a lot is you got to know your why. And so I think if you're starting from that lens and you're sharing that with your staff and they're on board, great. Then you're not going to have a ton of problems. But if they're not on board, then friction develops. And that's where you got to do some education or maybe you got to find somebody else to be in that role. I like that because parents are coming to whoever they can to try to see where the crack is to find somebody that's going communicate in a different way. And so, yeah, no, I like the fact that you're focusing on that. Well, the best example that's the super trivial and borderline irrelevant to the big picture of this conversation is the swimming pool is the bane of my existence because keeping it running is a battle every single day. And ultimately the levels of chemicals. And so all of a sudden, We've been having some issues because there's no CO2 anywhere in the country, which keeps the levels consistent. And so you're playing cat and mouse all day and some kids are having some reactions and we're getting peppered from parents and all this thing. And it's, I've got the coaches, I've got athletes on the team where I'm bringing them in the back. I'm showing them the equipment. I'm saying, these are the alerts that go off. We need to partner in this so that everyone understands what we're dealing with so that it's a collaborative effort to solve the problem rather than to just point out what the issue is. And I talk a lot about that. It's I can describe a problem with the best of them, but all I care about is can you prescribe a solution? It's a trivial example, Jamie, but it's exactly about how just in the last week where I have all the polo coaches, I've got the leaders of each polo team, and we're collaboratively trying to make sure that the water isn't what it needs to be for the kids. Yeah, man, it's it's the challenge, man. It's definitely, you're juggling a lot, man, because you got the interest of the coaches, you got the interest of the student athletes, you got the parents that are still heavily involved, they're still their their babies, and you got the fans, you got the donors that are donating money, you got a bunch of different stakeholders, like you said, that have a say, and some might believe they have more say than others. And then you talk about the shift from like the student athlete empowerment movement that is also ruffling coaches' feathers in a lot of ways. And I think it's, in my personal opinion, that never being a coach, I think it's due. Like, we do need to talk about how we're coaching and how we are loving on these kids. And do we see them as numbers? Do we care about them outside of? And that's one thing I've respected about you is that the couple of former athletes that I've interacted with of yours, 
they have nothing but great things to say. And to see that you still have maintained relationships with them says a lot about who you are as a man and as a coach. Well, I appreciate that. And one of the things that I would offer for conversation, since you're in the administration space now, and something that we're committed to institutionally from the president down is we try to keep the student at the center of the equation in any decision that we make. And we talk mm -hmm. often about not letting adult problems get in the way of kids. And mm -hmm. if your approach is coming from there, more often than not, you're going to land in the right spot, whatever that happens to be. Yep. And so it's like, how does this impact kids? Not how is this impacting my coaching money? My is that what the kids are what we're here to do? And kids at your level are 24 years old. But point being is how do you keep how do you keep the student athlete at the center of the equation and make all decisions around that? And all of a sudden the world opens up to having everybody rowing the same direction. I want to pivot really quickly before we got to go. Uh, and I want to ask a question that's a little bit loaded, and I don't know the data where you're particularly at. And so run with this however you want. But as a person of color in athletic administration, historically, you are an underrepresented group in that space relative to the number of athletes that participate. How has that been as you've stepped into that space? What challenges have you faced? What successes have you had? And what groups have you been able to be part of to not just shine a light on whatever the current situation is, but also grow the space? And part of it is talking about some of the things that you were at with Reg lately, but mm -hmm. also it's just what's the reality of that space at the collegiate level, where I know at the high school level, the trend is what it is nationally. I think for me, man, I've not really looked at myself in that way for a majority of my career up until recently, man, where I realized I'm needed in this space. One, I just have a different approach and a different outlook, and we all do, but I truly think I do as far as the student-centered care, and I almost maybe lean too far on the students at times, and so I have to be mindful as I prescribe things and as I move forward with things that I have to filter through other filters to protect myself from moving in that way. But I think I realize now being in this position, like right now I'm still in a dual compliance and administrative role. Typically administrators oversee areas. So they'll oversee marketing, oversee compliance, oversee event management. Right now I'm overseeing the track program but then I'm day-to-day -day compliant. So there's nobody really in our department that's doing the day-to-day -day and the administrative work. It was like a shift. But in that, I, my communication with Gene was like, one of the conversations was around getting my desk up to the 10th floor where all the other ADs are. And how, and my conversation with him that I don't think he was even thinking about is I'm the only one that looks like me, you know, one of the younger ones that look like me. These student athletes, I'm wearing what they're wearing. I'm shopping at some of the same places they shop. So why not leverage my privilege of age and of being hip, if you wanna say, like I'm not too far removed from where they're at. However, I also need to establish myself. And so oftentimes they don't view the work and the responsibility in the same way as they do how you show up, what meetings you're in, where you're located in the department. Just the fact that I'm still in a cubicle right now may send a message to some families, to some assistant coaches, to the people that I oversee, as if I'm not truly 
an administrator. And so that was part of my discussion with him. And then he was like, oh yeah, you're right. I didn't even think about that. And he's got years on me. So he's probably he's far removed from his younger years in administration. But that's one example in which I'm having to establish myself in this new leadership role and in this space. As it relates to just the industry in general, man, it is what it is, man. There's very few of us. It's a lot of white-haired older men that are calling the shots and leading the charge for the two revenue-generating sports happen to look like all of them are the young people that look like me. And so it, it just creates a complex there where you have to not that a white man can't lead and, and that he shouldn't be in that position, but I think people can make more of an effort to try to bring other people up that can help them see things that they may not, that can help them filter through some of their decisions that may culturally be impacting and fit, may, they may feel it some different type of way if other people were at the table. And so it, it's just a, it's a weird place, man. There's the cancel culture and things of that sort where I'm not really a fan of it, man. I think we grow and we learn through mistakes and through our shortcomings. And so, it, but when you're at a place like Ohio State, that can be detrimental to the brand. So the brand is something that you have to keep in mind because of the optics and the reputational risks that we have to consider. So recently I got selected for a leadership institute, which was a two-year program through the NCAA, one of their most prestigious ethnic minority leadership development programs that as I graduated and went through that program, a lot of it was about discovering who I am as a leader. My skills, my and how that fits into this line of work and this line of business, and then reinforcing that we need more people like you and who you are is enough. Like your authentic leadership styles and experiences can go well in these spaces with these young people and with the people that are working in this industry. Yeah, and I think to take it all the way back to the beginning where we met in this group about identity, basically, right? Yeah. How do you lean in and figure out what your authentic identity is and bring that to the space in an unapologetic fashion? while also understanding how to navigate the space as it currently exists and the history of it relative to respecting the brand, as you just said. So it's a tricky battle for all of us. And I think that over the time that I've known you the last couple of years, it's been fascinating to watch the journey and all the different things you're trying to get into and learn about yourself. And there's a lot of wisdom to be had if people listen closely to what you just shared. Thanks, man. Yeah, it's an ongoing process, man. Nobody's got it figured out. I think that's the thing that if more people would admit that and navigate with that humility at the core of who they are and being more curious about all of this stuff, like that would help. But there's a lot of people that they can't not have it figured out and not know. But I think if you don't know, there's somebody in that room and in that space, especially if you're positioning the right people to be in that space with you that you can lean on. You don't have to have it all figured out. Yep. And I think we depart with that. Be curious. Ask more questions. None of us have all the answers. How are you surrounding yourself with people that can help you grow and figure out what those answers are? Because as I've said on our group many times, the answer is always it depends. And so if that's the case, then you better know that you got to learn a lot of things depending on the situation. No doubt. That's the thing that you say asking questions. I would say the same going back to 
the discussion around transferring and navigating the college system, each college should have a, a compliance person. There are also people out here on LinkedIn and on these different platforms you have access to to ask questions. And I think I would just highly encourage families, parents, even just coaches to, to ask around um, because the answer is out there, even if you don't have it right at your fingertips. So, yeah. And I'll wrap with this. As a private school, we have admissions, right? It's not just show up and do X, Y, and Z. So as people are exploring, hey, what are the eligibility impacts of me transferring there? I had a 30-minute conversation with a person the other day and a full Zoom calls with somebody that was in Australia a couple of weeks ago to make sure before they made a decision to come that they understood the implications of their transfer mm -hmm. in their on their athletic eligibility. And I think not asking those questions in advance is setting yourself up for disappointment. And so if you leave with nothing else, hey, the answer's out there. Go find it. There's plenty of resources. If you don't know where to go, feel free to call me. Feel free to call Jamie. Reach like, out to me. Yeah, We'll help you navigate it. Uh, where can people find you, Jamie, if they want to keep up with you in the socials? Yeah, so uh, obviously LinkedIn is my name, Jamie Wood. My socials, Instagram is Jamie Wood Official. Twitter is, I think it's I am Jamie Wood. Um, you search Jamie Wood, you should be able to find me. Awesome. All right, well, thanks for taking the time today, Coach. Looking forward to seeing you in a couple of hours on our call. All right, sounds good, Climo. Have a good one. This podcast was also brought to you by teachhoops.com. As coaches, our inboxes will get flooded with noise on how to make your program better. Teachhoops.com will get you focused on what needs to get done. One thing you've heard from these podcasts is no matter the experience, you gotta keep pushing yourself to be better. Coach Steve Collins will help you direct that noise. He is there to help you. He has the credentials as a coach and he's never turned down an Teach Hoops member. Sign up plan at teachhoops.com and mention us at checkout. This site is here simply to help you be better. Take advantage and see you on the court. Remember, go to teachhoops.com. Drink Element is a healthy alternative to sugary electrolyte drinks. Each grab-and-go stick pack replaces essential electrolytes with no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, or any other junk. Element is thrilled to be releasing a new limited time flavor this November, Element Milk Chocolate. I drink Element every day to support my workouts and being on the court and in the classroom. As a member of our community, Element has a special offer for you. Claim your free Element sample pack. You only cover the cost of shipping. Get yours today at drinkelement, that's L-M-N-T, dot com slash contacts.